Well, can I add my welcome to those who have already been given? Great to have you with us, either here in the room, if you're joining us online. Last week, we kicked off this series we're calling Story, all about our story, your story, God's story. And we're going through Mark's account of Jesus's life. And if you weren't here last week, and if you'd really value, we've got loads of these journals. These are simply Mark's gospel, which are available for you to take on your way out over refreshments. If you want to grab one of these, space for you to have notes, write notes, doodle, whatever it might be. If you want to make a £2 donation for that to cover the cost, that'd be helpful. But if you really want one and you can't afford it, feel free to simply take one. That's no problems at all. And it's Mark's account. There are four gospels in the New Testament, four accounts of Jesus. And if you like, Marx is the earliest, the briefest, the most kind of um, sharpest in terms of not much room for lots of explanation. And as it were, when we hear Mark's voice, actually we're hearing Peter's voice because it's well regarded by most scholars that actually Peter is the one through whom Mark is writing down Peter's account. So that's what we're listening to as we go through Mark's gospel over these weeks. Uh, on Friday night, I had a brilliant uh, evening uh, with a friend of mine. We went to Attic Brewery in Sturchley. Great time chatting with a good, good friend of mine. Bumped into Tom Abner, actually. It was nice to see him. Uh, anyway, by the by, it, during that evening, because I knew that I was speaking about this, I had a conversation with this friend of mine. And this friend of mine is not a follower of Jesus, not a Christian, wouldn't call himself a Christian, wouldn't call himself religious. He used to kind of say he was an atheist. He sort of would now say agnostic. But anyway, not a Christian. Uh, and we were talking, and so I decided to ask him, what do you think of Jesus? We're good friends. We've had loads of conversations over the years. So it wasn't a, a kind of unnatural thing. Uh, and his answer shocked me, because he said the opening words were, I guess I would say, love. That's a pretty good answer, isn't it? I guess I would say love. And he is not alone in that idea of Jesus. We mentioned last week a report called Talking Jesus. Talking Jesus was done a lot over the last couple of years, a report by the Church of England, uh, Hope Together, Evangelical Alliance, Salvation Army, Alpha, loads of people involved in this survey to find out our views of Christians, of Christianity, of Jesus. And here is a finding uh, of this about what people thought of Jesus. You'll see it on the screen there. Up it will come up. And overwhelmingly, people in the UK think positively. The most common words were spiritual, peaceful, leader, wise, and loving. That's the pink one that comes up on the screen. By the way, just as an aside, we're encouraging all groups within the life of Riverside to do something called the Talking Jesus course at some point over this year. So if you're a group leader, you will have a couple of emails already from us. The resources available for you to unpack that to work out how do we share our stories naturally in a way that helps others discover something of what we found in Jesus. So my friend is not alone in thinking that Jesus is loving. And in fact, among people who have no religion, nearly a quarter of them put loving as their top answer. Amazing. So friends, how would you describe Jesus? If you're joining us at home, how would you describe Jesus? What are the first words that come to your mind? Because by and large, the overwhelming majority of people, people of faith and not, 
describe Jesus in positive terms. But it's what my friend said next that really struck me. Because after saying that Jesus was about love, he then said these words. And remember, this was in his mind after a drink or two. He said, but I suppose that's why Jesus would really annoy us. Because he's so loving, he loves the people I hate. The oppressor as well as the oppressed. Wow. So how would you describe Jesus? Well, in this series, Mark is introducing us to Jesus. Telling the story beyond all stories. And for the first half of Mark's account, he is basically setting up who Jesus is. And as part of this series, we've been inviting everyone who's part of Riverside to share something of their story. We'd love to encourage everyone, if you have not yet done so, to grab your phone. Not now, it'd be a bit weird doing it right now. But grab your phone, put it on camera mode so you can see your face, and just tell a little bit of something that Jesus has done in your life, how you became a follower of Jesus, something that Jesus means to you, and then upload it. All the details you'll get if you get our regular news or go to our website. I wanted to show you another story this week. So we're going to hear David Worthington's story. David's not here because he had a big weekend, a big birthday weekend this weekend. But let's hear David's story to find out what Jesus means to him. Hello, I'm David Worthington. This is my story of how I became a Christian. I've been going to a church in North Stoke-on-Trent for several years because I was part of a scout group and it was their place to go. I, my aunt was a Christian and she said to me one day, why don't you try out this new youth fellowship in Stoke-on-Trent? In Stoke so I said, yeah, okay, I'll give it a go. So I went to this new youth fellowship and when I got there, I was totally amazed I expected to see about 10 people, but in actual fact, there were about 180 younger people in there. And I was awestruck. And when I left that place, I wrote in my diary, which I didn't normally keep, I've met Jesus. That was after the first time I went. I'd never met people who talked about having a relationship with Jesus Christ before because that's what Christianity is about. It's not about keeping rules and regulations. It's not about going to church. It's about who you know and who you let know you. Jesus became my friend. Three weeks after that first time I went, Somebody in the church said, if you'd like to become a Christian, would you come and stand at the front? And I was up out of my seat like a shot, and I was followed by two other people. And we all on that occasion became Christians. We became friends of Jesus. And the sense of peace as he came into me was totally overwhelming and I think that this 
is what all people should do. So if you're ever given the chance to meet Jesus, to know him, to experience his love, his peace, do so. Thank you. Well, Mark would agree with David. There is something so unique about Jesus. And some of us here this morning haven't yet embraced that for ourselves. Others of us have, but if we're honest, the passion's gone a little bit cold. And other of us just this morning need to be reminded again. So four quick things from the passage that Amanda read to us that are unique about Jesus. And firstly, the first thing is this, the nature of who Jesus is. The claims being made about Jesus by Mark are shocking, but yet we so easily forget kind of 2,000 years later with all of the heritage. He's simply saying Jesus is not just another spiritual leader. He's not just a wise person. He is not just a prophet. He is not just another guru. He is not just another mini messiah. He is not just a religious leader. You cannot say that, Mark is saying. Let's look again, verse 9. Hopefully on the screen it will come. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you're my son whom I love with him, with you I am well pleased. Do you notice the phrase, heaven was torn open? There is an urgency Literally ripped open. Heaven rips open and steps into our world. That's how desperate God is to step into our lives. That phrase is only used one other time in Mark's account. Do you know when? That phrase torn open is when Jesus dies and the curtain in the temple is torn open. As it were, God is saying, I am stepping in once for all, ripping open heaven for you. Jesus is not just another spiritual wise leader that I might pick or choose and follow his ways or not. Heaven ripped open for us. And you notice the three people present in this moment. You've got the voice, God the Father, declaring. You've got the Son, Jesus. And then you've got the Holy Spirit, as a dove, the three persons of God, the Godhead. And you notice the thing that binds them together. What is it? My friend was right. Love. This God is not some distant, here's a bunch of rules. If you don't follow it, I'm going to zap you. No, right at the heart of who God is, is a relationship of love. As David said, God is a relational God who is interested in you, cares about you. This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. But this points to something really important because the first readers that would have read this would have been from a Jewish background. And so therefore they would have known the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament, with all of these promises that one day God would step in. And one of the most famous one of those would have been ringing in their ears as these words were read by Mark. In Isaiah chapter 42, this is the promise that one day God would step in. And this is what Isaiah said. 
Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him. And so therefore when Mark is saying, you are well loved, I delight in you, and then the spirit comes down, wow. They would have thought this could be the one, this could be the moment. Not just another spiritual leader, not just another prophet, no, this is the one. But that passage goes on. Because after Isaiah saying that God delights and the spirit comes down, this is what this servant will be like. Isaiah reads on. Here is my servant whom I behold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he won't break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. The nature of Jesus' mission is not a normal revolution. Take to the streets to destroy the government. No, he will not shout out. Instead, do you notice what is characterized by his nature? Compassion for the bruised reed and the smoldering wick. Just think about those two things. A bruised reed. Imagine a reed in a river snapped. Or imagine a candle and it's just smoldering. The light, the passion, the flame has gone. And friends, as I was preparing this week, I had a sense there may be one or two of us here or joining us online that you might not use the language of a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. But somehow when you think about your life and who you are, you feel as though you have not achieved what you should have achieved. And you feel a weight of shame even. Some of us, even as men, because of something, we feel that we're somehow like a bruised reed. Some of us as women, because of what's going on in our life, we feel as though we're a smoldering wick, not what we should be. And we somehow look around at other people and think, they surely should have it. I wonder what God thinks of me. This is what God thinks of you. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not snuff out a smoldering wick. You are the people he comes for. We are the people he comes for. Friends, shocking to say, Jesus is not expecting perfection from you. I love a quote from a guy called Brennan Manning. Brennan Manning wrote this thing uh, where he was talking about when he stands before Jesus, what Jesus would say about him. Uh, And he tells this story to someone else and he says this. I'm just going to read it to you. It's a long quote, but it's worth hearing. Perhaps the most difficult thing for you to accept at this moment is your failure to have done with your life what you long to accomplish. Somewhere you got the idea that I, i.e. Jesus, expected your life to be an untarnished success story, an unbroken upward spiritual guide towards holiness. Don't you see that I'm too realistic for that? He goes on, I witnessed a Peter who three times claimed that he didn't even know me. A James who wanted power in return for service in the kingdom. A Philip who after three years together didn't know he was supposed to see the father in me. And a score of other disciples and other followers who were sure I was finished at Calvary. The New Testament is full of those who started out well and faltered. The point is this, and I love this phrase, as if Jesus is saying, I expect more failure from you than you expect from yourself. Friends, 
Bruised reed he does not break. A smoldering wick he does not snuff out. And I wanted to say as gently as I can, as I was preparing this, at the end we're going to have an opportunity for prayer. I wonder if there are one or two people within the room or joining us at home who you feel because of some physical thing within your life that you somehow have not been what you quote should have been. Later at the end, can I encourage you to come forward, go to be prayed with? Because to see this morning, God might want to break that and to show you how he sees you, friends. So the nature of Jesus, kind, caring, doesn't break the broken. Wow. Second thing, the power of Jesus. So we've got a grasp of what Jesus is like. He's already different. But now we're eager to know, okay, so if he's like that, what's he going to do? Is he just going to do TED Talks or, you know, come and hear my voice? Well, he is a fighter on your behalf. Verse 12. Let's read again. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and the angels attended him. Do you notice? Immediately, where does he go? to Jerusalem, to defeat the government. No, he goes to the wilderness. An important point, by the way, the wilderness is not a sign of God's absence. Often it's a sign of God's favor. And if you are feeling that you are in the wilderness, it may well be because God is doing something beautiful in you, painful though it may be, friends. At once, he goes to confront evil. And elsewhere in the Gospels, other Gospels, we hear the nature of this little battle with Satan. You can read it in in some of the other Gospels. But what is right at the heart of this battle is the temptation for Jesus to use his power for his own gain or for others. And you get a snapshot of that in verse 21. We're not going to read it all, but verse 21 to 26, this moment where Jesus encounters somebody who is overcome by evil. And what happens is, I'll read the bit of you, just verse 23. Just then a man in the synagogue who was possessed with an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Interestingly, no one else does, but evil does at this point. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. And the impure spirit shook the man violently, came out of him with a shriek. Even Jesus' words silence evil. I want to be on his team. Not only is he caring and compassionate, not breaking bruised reeds, but he with a word can silence evil. Wow. But do you notice Jesus doesn't use his power for his own personal gain? but he uses it to battle and fight evil on our behalf. And I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where experientially that has happened to you. Someone with real power, and you were powerless, has stepped in on your behalf. I wonder if you've ever been in that environment. There's been a number of occasions where it's happened for me. Many of you will know we have a son who has complex needs, and many of you will also know the system that we're in is straight, is creaking, and in some respects is broken. 
And I can still remember sitting once at the Birmingham Children's Hospital waiting for an appointment. And one of Caleb's consultants saw us, was walking past, going somewhere else, and sort of stopped and said, oh, hi, you know. And asked what we were here for, we explained. And with that, the consultant said, give me a minute. Went and got something. And then we were called into our appointment. And out with that, this other consultant came in. And this consultant had real power. Went into our appointment, even though it wasn't her appointment. And said to the other person, this is what I need you to do for this child. And reeled off three or four things that this person had to do. Because this person was more senior than them. I almost burst into tears because finally someone with real power had done something on our behalf. And friends, here we have the one who can even silence the devil fighting on your behalf. Real power, but not used for personal gain for you and for me, smoldering wicks though we may be. Isn't that good news? Uh, Just as a pause for a moment, as a little momentary reflection on our use of power in our culture... You will know in our society that so often leadership is used for personal gain. Just look at the headlines. Even this morning with various people in our political or business establishment wanting to feather their own pockets, not serve. We've seen that over the years, haven't we? And so much so that people trust less and less and less. But we've also, if we are really honest, see it in the church with story after story of Christian leaders using their position, sadly, for their own gain. Many of it not our tribe, much of it our tribe. This is not specific to any one group. It is part of the human condition, and which is why it's so revolutionary when Jesus uses genuine power, not for personal gain, at great cost, in the wilderness and ultimately on the cross. So friends, just worth you thinking, what power might you have and how are you using that? Some of us have positional power in our workplace. Maybe we're a parent. Maybe we have some sort of role in a community, whatever it might be. Do we use that for personal gain or to genuinely serve those we lead? Some of us, if we're candid, have emotional power. A partner, a friend, a colleague. Uh, uh, This came home to me recently. I was in a meeting when I said something in the meeting that I, with hindsight afterwards, realized was a very unhelpful thing to say because I said it in such a way that the person really had no comeback because it was so emotionally laden. For that person to disagree with me would have given the impression that they really were unkind. Emotional power, by me, used badly. Friends, how do we use the power that we have? Let's steward it like Jesus, not for personal gain. So, the nature of Jesus, the power of Jesus. Racing now, two more points. But even more than that then, what does this Jesus offer to us? Because so far, we're getting a good picture. Not just a spiritual leader, not just a wise guru, not just another prophet. He's in the big leagues. But he offers a different world, the kind of society that you or I, might I suggest, want to be part of. Did you know last year, 2022, every year different dictionaries choose their word of the year? The word of the year in the Merriam-Webster dictionary that they chose for last year was the word gaslight. 
That was the word that was so predominant in our society. Isn't that tragic? The word that is so common, highlighting something that is so common, that it becomes the word of the year. I don't know about you, over the last few years, it seems that everybody is in it for themselves. And even social activism that so often turns out wanting to help others then gets turned for a quick profit. Me, 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 me. My kingdom. We were talking about Project Me last week. But do you notice what's involved in this kingdom? Verse 14 to 15. Listen again. After John was put in prison, Jesus went to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repentance. Repentance. It's a pretty hardcore word in our culture, isn't it? No one likes that idea. Repentance. You don't want to talk to that about your friends, do you? But Jesus' kingdom isn't about other people needing to sort themselves out. Jesus' kingdom is about us. Repentance simply means a change of mind resulting in a change of action. But I want to suggest this emphasis on repentance is so life-giving. Let me illustrate why. I was reading a guy recently called Matt Klein. He works for, one of the things he does is works for Reddit. I don't know if you've heard of Reddit. If you haven't heard of Reddit, either ask a teenager or ask somebody that knows about the internet. Reddit is sometimes known as the front page of the internet. Everything that goes viral on the internet, according to John Auger, basically was on Reddit a few weeks ago. Okay? So it's kind of like a summary of what's going on, the things that people are talking about. This is what Matt Klein, who's their kind of head of foresight, future, where culture is going. This is what he said, stunning words, shocking words. It's a lot of words, but concentrate. In a culture of ethical greys, the binary of good or bad no longer exists. Lost in conflicting subjectivity, we're seeking support and consensus to help us navigate what's right and true. We're seeking vulnerability and acceptance. Millions are desiring social exoneration. A cathartic purification in a culture which perhaps is too judgmental, perfectionistic, and unforgiving. That's a lot of complex words. But he's simply saying what we want to know is we want to know if we're doing right and we believe and think the right things. And we seek affirmation from other people. Whether it be on social media, by performatively saying, my views are this. Yay, often I got the right views, whatever it might be. And he sees it all the time within Reddit. And I've noticed a trend in my life and amongst my friends, you may think the same, that you're in a social environment and sometimes somebody voices an opinion about something that is slightly edgy and they're not sure if it's okay to say it. And this is on various different community settings. And so what happens, they couch it in a language hoping that others will say it's okay to think that. And then when they get a nod or two, then they gradually open up a bit more. Or if they get a not a nod, then they close it down. I don't really think that. What we're seeking is validation from others that we're okay and what we think is okay and what we do is okay. How freeing then to be part of a community in which the entrance ticket is not based on knowing you're doing right, believing right, thinking right, but on the basis of knowing all of us are flawed. And so therefore accepted by the one who doesn't break bruised reeds or snuff out smoldering wicks. Isn't that good news? 
I want to suggest repentance is the gift that our society really needs. Because then we no longer despair in ourselves. We should be better. And we're no longer critical of others who should be better. Because we're all a bit messed up. We need a saviour. Friends, my time is done by simply pointing to the last point. Out of all that, in light of this Jesus, who is not just a wise spiritual leader, a new prophet, then surely we want to be on his team, a follower of his. And just like those first followers, not just, yeah, I'll fit him in when I can, but at once they drop their nets. Abel.